This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Anyone who knows me or has listened to me for any length of time knows I was born and grew up in Colorado at 8,000 feet, the middle daughter of three of a gardener floral designing mother and a wildlife biologist father amid ponderosa pine forests. Winter meant dry cold, snow, and wreath and Christmas tree season. Our home and my mother's garden surrounding it was adjacent to a 2,400-acre Colorado mountain park established in 1914 and known for its free-ranging wild bison and elk herds that lived within the enclosure. Sometime in late October, we girls were paid, not very well, to forage for wind-fallen ponderosa pine cones. We gathered these by the bagful and brought them home to then wire them into bunches of three for later wiring by my mother and her festive women colleagues, Schwarzy and Audrey and many kind others, onto thick evergreen wreaths for sale to the holiday regulars and at markets. The activity, the sights and scents of foraging for the cones, the rhythm of wiring them into their bunches, which, by the time Christmas actually arrived, left our fingertips sore and chapped, perforated by the prickly cones. The smells of my mother's workshop, loaded with wreaths and trees and cones and forced paper whites starting to open in rocky basins, and the talk and laughter of the older women, sometimes exhausted and panicked, worrying that they wouldn't get everything done in time, these remain some of my strongest winter solstice and Christmas memories. Traditions of greening in anticipation of the solstice as good luck and protection for the returning of the light dates back to ancient Druid, Celtic, and Roman traditions. No matter your religious or cultural background, there is something about preparing both the garden and the home for the winter holidays that's primal, universal, a gathering of evergreen and aromatics and beauty to hold us through the restorative dark and dormancy. This week, we're joined by British gardener, floral designer, and horticulturalist Thomas Broom Hughes of Thomas Bloom Flowers and Petersham Nurseries to talk about the history and richness of this human impulse to deck the halls and green the winter season here in the Northern Hemisphere. Inspired by a green and pleasant land, even as winter arrives, Tom takes some time out between his luxury wreath workshops and his school of garden inspiration in winter to join us via Skype from his home in London. Welcome, Tom. Thank you, Jennifer. Pleased to be on the program. So let's start with your own garden and your own gardening practice as it exists now. Describe for us as visually as you can um, what your garden consists of and what your common garden practice is. My garden at home is very much a sort of calm gardening practice whereby I've, I've actually had an overhaul of the way I garden in the last sort of year. Mm. Um, I'd always had very planterly gardens and quite sort of high maintenance gardens with lots of cutting flowers and herbaceous perennials that are quite a lot to maintain. However, this year, we, my husband and I had our garden redesigned because we're both busy professionals. We wanted to have a space that we were relaxed in mm -hmm. and could enjoy rather than sat on the garden bench thinking, I have to deadhead this rose, I have to do this, <laughs> I have to do that. So now we've very much overhauled our garden into a place where it can be very calm and not such high maintenance. We decided to do this last year, very much sort of inspired by travels in Scandinavia, because we loved the way that everything was paired back, very natural. So we've incorporated a lot of wood, a lot of black, lots of green, and lots of white. So it's a very mm. sort of muted palette in the garden, and it is a very relaxing space to be in. How big is the garden, and how long have you been there? So we've been in our current garden for four years, nearly, nearly four years. And when we took the house over, it was 
very much a garden full of lots of different things and lots of objets in the garden. So we sort of wanted to remove a lot of these items and, and have quite a simple space. Mm. And it's only 20 foot by 20 foot, so it's a square garden, but also because of the space, we wanted to make it somewhere where it felt bigger. So we've actually had it designed where we've put in lots of different levels into the garden. Mm and made smaller rooms. We've also introduced a water rill, so we have a calm corner to sit in where we're absolutely sort of enveloped by plants, which is it's fairly shady, so we've put in a lot of ferns and woodruff and surrounded it with um, magnolia grandiflora trees and another section, you know, which we've laid to two different levels of lawn, which have rectangular beds that have filled quite densely, but surrounded by sort of small box hedges. It looks formal, but it's it's relaxed, mm -hmm. if you get my sense. Yeah, yeah. And I have seen pictures of corners of the garden and especially that rill. And I can sense exactly what you're saying. And that must be such a nice sanctuary, different, still a garden, but very different from your very busy floral work. Is your husband also a gardener? And what is his name? My husband's called Matthew, and actually, no, he's a vice president of a broadcast company, so a completely different job. <laughs> Does he like to I garden do. with you? So, yeah, we garden together, and actually, it's something that we love to do together. It's, yeah. a, it's a nice sort of pleasurable thing to do at weekends, and and he enjoys the creativity that I bring with what I do, and it's very much our space. So. Nice. Because because we have a small garden, you know, it's very important to us to make an extension of the house with the gardeners in another room. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, we very much enjoyed designing that together. All of the plants we put in were picked together. So we very much worked together on, on what the garden looks like, which is a nice collaboration. Yeah, yeah. When when you look back at your own life, Tom, what what do you count as your earliest influences in becoming a, a garden and nature and floral loving person? So I grew up in the southwest of England in a county called Devon in a very small town, but we sort of lived on the edge of the town. So the countryside has always been a huge connection with how I was brought up. My childhood was spent walking in country lanes, picking flowers, observing plants. Um, my family always was plants were quite a big influence in what you did growing up in the country. And also my grandparents were big gardeners. They enjoyed the garden, so they were a huge influence on me in that sense. But also I had a wonderful great aunt, a maiden aunt called Aunt Peg, who would, she was the one who introduced me to seed sowing and growing my own sweet peas and encouraged me to garden at a very young age. And that was a, a huge influence on me. Probably from sort of five or six years old, I've, I've always been intrigued by the garden and flowers and scent and color. I was very lucky in that sense. And then at the age of six, I went to boarding school and there it was the 1980s and rollerblading and such like were very popular with young children, but not so enjoyable for me. Um, and luckily at the school that I went to, we had something for the, the children that boarded. We had gardens that we could tend. So this became a sort of ritual, a daily ritual to, to work on, on my little space with, with other friends who still to this day, we, we quite often communicate and we still love gardening. It's, it was a really good thing for me to do as a child, which in my teenage years, I carried on doing in my holidays when I was at home. It sort of continued from there, my love of gardening. Your life and career took some some turns before it returned to its gardening impulse. Tell us a little bit about that journey and your um, return to the gardening world. Yes, it was quite a sort of, when when I was growing up, I was no, I would never consider myself an academic. I was always a bit of a dreamer and uh, very much a sort of creative person. So at school, I pursued a lot of um, music and theater. So at my last school, I was a music scholar. And I sort of made the decision that I would like to study horticulture or floristry. And when I put this to the sort of careers advisor, um, my, my schoolmaster, they said, well, you know, that's not really a good career to get into. You know, you'll never make any money. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
I was like, okay, well, you know, obviously other things are expected of me. So by default, I ended up enrolling onto a degree in international travel and tourism management, which really wasn't what I wanted to go into because it wasn't very creative. Nevertheless, I ended up studying and then I became intrigued by aviation and I decided that I would quite like to be a flight attendant and I thought I would do it for a couple of years and it ended up being nearly 15 years that I was working in the aviation industry. Mm. So it's something that I always dreamt of doing but actually what changed my career for me and my husband and I at the time we've been living in the home counties quite near London and we decided to move down to Devon where I was from by the sea and we bought a beautiful 1920s house with a very large garden and we completely revamped the garden whereby we dug up a lot of the formal lawns created raised beds for growing vegetables and cutting flowers and by doing that my life and my thoughts became consumed mm -hmm. by gardening. When we had to move back to London because of my husband's job, he turned around to me, and this is where I think I'm very lucky, and I said, oh, you know, I'll look for a job flying from London. And he said, no, do what you want to do. And from there, I decided to enrol on a floristry course, and the rest is history. Yeah. I fell in love with horticulture and floristry and the sort of marriage of the two. Yeah. And that became very important to me to be a florist, but a gardening florist yeah. in the respect of seasonality and what's all about the now rather than, you know, nowadays we're sort of saturated with you wanted a peony in December, you could have a peony in December. But for me, it was all about respecting what was in the garden now. So I've been very lucky in that I've been able to do eventually what I've really wanted to do, and, and I've never looked back since then. And contrary to your school advisor's warnings, you have made a very successful go of it, which is so wonderful to see in this world. You, you are now a very active and sought-after floral designer and workshop leader and speaker, and you are the head of horticulture at the very well-known Petersham Nurseries. Describe what your current work entails on a seasonal basis. Well, I would say it's my main job at Petersham Nurseries. Um, my role is head of horticulture there, but it's quite a diverse role whereby I actually work as primarily my role is as a plant buyer. Throughout the year, I am responsible for buying all of the outdoor and indoor plants that we stock at the nursery, as well as gardenalia, spades, secateurs, even down to the compost, actually. Mm. So that's my primary function there. But also about four years ago, I started up the School of Garden Inspiration, which was all a workshop-based learning for gardeners of any level. So the word inspiration was key in setting up the school. It wasn't for you know, learned gardeners to come in. It was for anyone who just wanted to be inspired. So it's aimed at giving short, an hour and a half to two hour demonstrations and workshops, sometimes hands-on, just where people can see very much focusing on the seasonality of what plants are growing and, and what one should be doing in their garden at the relevant time of year. Mm. That's very much quite a, a large function of my job is the sort of events and the buying. But also we do quite a lot of events where I get to use my skills of floristry. So we, we, we often do sort of full Fragonard weddings. They are, again, big affairs with lots of beautiful flowers and focusing on the seasonal, the now, rather mm -hmm. than, you know, using things that are, are not going to be growing around the, the time of year that the event is held. Mm -hmm. So to do that, do you buy in flowers from local growers or foliage or other natural elements that are grown in a relatively close proximity so that they're on the same season with you? How, how do you do that, especially through the winter, Tom? So we try and do this as much as possible. We are very fortunate at Petersham, whereby the owners um, give us the full run of their garden, much to the disdain of the head gardener. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but we, we can cut um, a great deal from the borders there, which is what really makes, you know... If I am preparing for a wedding and I'm cutting things from the garden to use, 
you know, for me, that is the joy of being a florist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing quite like being in the garden, six in the morning, cutting roses on a June day. We're very lucky that we have accessibility to that. And also we have cutting gardens, which are sort of designed and planted up by the head gardeners. But then I get to use the sort of final result. So it's 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 a, a, a great you know um, thing to do. Yeah. We do also try and use local growers, but obviously when you're doing a large event, sometimes in, in the UK, we have quite a lot of small scale growers. So mm-hmm. the sort of volumes that are required for large weddings, we do have to bring in things from Holland, but it will always be from growers that we know, growers that use organic practices mm-hmm. and biocontrols on their nurseries, which is becoming more and more common in mm-hmm. Holland, I have to say. And then other foliage we will get from Cornwall, we'll get stuff from Scotland. So it's we grab things from wherever we can, but it's and 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 of course um forage things from the locale of the nursery. But yeah. primarily we want to to achieve what is seasonal. So we we, we rarely use anything that is not in bloom at that time of year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we have to be quite strict with brides and say, you know, this is what we will do. We can't give you hydrangeas in January. <laughs> it's, well it's done, just you. not done. <laughs> yeah. Then you are also very busy with your own floral design company, Thomas Bloom Flowers. On, on my own business, Thomas Bloom, it's something that I, as it became, I had my day job and then friends and family were asking me to do weddings. And then I was getting asked by sort of horticultural societies to give talks. And so I thought, well, I would develop my my name. My name is Broom Hughes. And I thought, well, Bloom, you know, Broom, Bloom sort mm-hmm. of work. So I would set up my own little business, which generally is on Saturdays. I do quite a lot of weddings and events. So it's quite a lot of work mm-hmm. um, to, to have two sort of personas. But when you love what you're doing, it's it's not a great feat to be doing lots of things. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. For today's guest, British gardener florist Thomas Broom Hughes, his own home garden is a place of calm and sanctuary for him and his husband after their busy work days. While he used to have a much larger and higher maintenance garden, the predominantly green and multi-roomed, though small garden they now enjoy together allows them to both garden and relax in their space, instead of always having the nagging sense that something needs to be cut back, deadheaded, weeded, etc. We'll be right back after a break to hear more of Tom's winter wreath workshops and his own home winter decorations for the holidays. Stay with us. Hey, it's me, Jennifer, from Cultivating Place. People always told me that time seemed to speed up as you aged, and I kind of didn't believe them. But this year, it's been very true for me. It's hard to believe we're knocking on the door of December. On December 9th, one of my own annual traditions for the past decade takes place when I host a native plant wreath workshop for the California State University. It's one of my favorite things to do each year. It's small and it's very casual. For a few months though, prior to this, I'm thinking and looking for fun dried flowers, seeds, stalks, stems, fresh cedar, redwood. It's not fancy, but the group of 15 or so wreath makers always slows me down. It places me at the heart of this season's meaning for me. What are your holiday greening traditions, old or new? that center and bring unrushed celebration to you. I'd love to hear and to see. Make sure to follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook to stay in touch and let me hear from you. After all, the whole point of Cultivating Place for me is to have these conversations about these things we love and that connect us all. Together, we gardeners make a difference for the better in this world. And now back to our conversation with Tom. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to hear more from gardener 
and floral designer Thomas Broom Hughes, whose Thomas Bloom Floristry and School of Garden Inspiration at Petersham Nurseries in England's Richmond and Covent Garden neighborhoods introduces and encourages hundreds of people each winter to cultivate their own creativity in holiday wreaths and other winter garden beauty. Welcome back. It's nice to have my own outlet, which is very much me. So I've started doing workshops in my garden room, um, which is a very small studio, but for four people only. So it's very much intimate workshop, but it's also focusing on seasonality and the different ways that you can work with flowers, whether it be wreath making, potting up things, doing these beautiful, very organic designs. For that, I use a lot of local growers. So next year, I've started connecting with a lot of local small-scale growers to feed my my workshop business. Mm. So Yeah. So it's not June, and we aren't cutting roses from the border, at least not very often. I have a few left in my garden, but we yeah, are... Yeah, as do we here, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so you just never know when that will happen. But we're we're at this moment, which... I don't know if it's exactly true or it just feels this way as we enter it, but entering into December seems to bring out the maker in a lot of people in a way that isn't necessarily true of other times of year. There's a lot of energy and stimulation in the spring, and there's a lot of abundance in the summer, but there's something about the sort of pulling in and the contracting that happens for the winter season that brings out the the craftiness and the hands-on urges of a lot of people I know. As you're preparing for the winter holidays there, we've just celebrated Thanksgiving here. Are you aware of your own traditions for celebrating this season as being in a longer historical flow of ritual marking, Tom? Yeah, I think it's very much, for me, uh, the winter season is all about making this sort of phase now for that Danish word, huga. Right. So making your, your home space very comfortable, whether it be bringing in plants or beautiful blankets or eating lovely food. And I think that's become a huge focus for, for people in who are leading very busy lives. And also people don't really stop working with the arrival of smartphones and iPads. I think the tradition of Christmas very much makes people realize that they are that there is a huge tradition and age-old tradition and I think people nowadays draw a lot of comfort from the fact that there there was a story behind it if you forget about all of the sort of commerciality that arrives with Christmas but mm. I, th- I think think you know that the whole ritual of Christmas is goes back years and years and people are really sort of um, trying to capture again what people used to do in Christmas past. Mm-hmm. I think what was what was lost in the arrival of shops and internet buying. Now I think sort of people want to re-engage with creativity and and the traditions of Christmas more so than they did probably ten years ago. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's it's even it transcends even Christmas. Although if you come from a Christian background, that that certainly is the dominant influence. But the the idea of the solstice or the festival of lights or just that moving into the longer nights and the shorter days, there has been ancient traditions surrounding the lighting of candles and the bringing in of evergreens that I think appeals to to anybody beyond Absolutely. right yeah those those urges to somehow mark or celebrate this season are so they're just so powerful and and as as you say very comforting in a lot of ways what what are your own family traditions for marking this season so actually Strange enough, my mother always referred to Christmas as silly season, is in a sort of rejection to the commerciality that was happening sort of when I was growing up in the 1980s. And was a chorister in a cathedral choir from six until 13. I was required to be at school for Christmas and sing for all of the sort of uh, services that were there. So in a way, I, I, I spent Christmas at school, but I really didn't 
sort of from six until 13 didn't partake in family Christmases at home on Christmas morning. So um, when I met my husband, he is from Michigan and um, from a family that, you know, sort of celebrated Christmas together. And for me now, we have set our own traditions as a family, um, my husband and I, and it's very much um, for us about making our home beautiful and comfortable for Christmas. And, you know, even down to until I met my husband, I never had had a poncetta in my house. Mm. But now we always have poncettas at Christmas time. <laughs> so that's our little tradition. And um, when we we moved in together for the first time, we went to a Christmas tree farm and chose our Christmas tree. And we've done that every year since. So, you know, there's little traditions that you bring in that I think are very comforting to have at Christmas time. And, you know, you always set as a family your own little traditions. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's doing those things every year are lovely. And it's 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 a memory that you, you'll never forget doing the, uh, a sort of ritual Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is how the sort of the floristry intrigue and the tradition, a sort of massive, you know, it's a huge impact on how I am as a gardener now yeah. and, and a florist. So it was a big thing in my life that made me see flowers for what they were so yeah clearly i'm hearing you talk about this this idea of building traditions with your husband and in your own home in a way that combines sort of both of your histories and that that ritual of being a part of a a choir that's saying and now as a workshop leader working with people through this season and through your wreath classes or through your demonstrations at the nursery, what do you think it is that people are looking for? Like, what what is this feeding in us, do you think? I think, you know, the, the beauty of floristry and plants is that it really gives people a sort of inner sense of calm. And, and I think that people you know, they're really looking for something to make them feel. We're exposed to so much media where you might look on the television, you'll see an advert of a family sat around a roaring fire, smiling, wearing their Christmas jumpers. But I think that it's sort of that whole sense of calm and and beauty. In, in winter, they want beauty to focus on, you know, whether it be a bowl of paper white narcissus on their table or a beautiful vase of foliage. It's it's sort of a very comforting thing to, to make your home beautiful. And I think certainly from workshops, you know, the wreath making, um, I don't know if it's the same in America, but in the UK, it's become hugely popular. Mm. And, um, you know, this year has been been inundated with requests for, for wreath. And um, the fact that people can create their own things at Christmas is it's a sense of achievement and they're not only creating for themselves but they're creating for their family and for other people so it's it's also very much a sense that people want to create something or use flowers and plants to share with other people mm-hmm. which is also a lovely thing because i think it's it's not all about you will sit there and focus on it yourself but you want to make beauty and for your home to share with others which is what in a way you know the christmas period is all about right and I, th- I, as I'm thinking through from the beginning of our conversation to now, I think one of the things that keeps coming to mind for me is this idea of connection and this concept that that's what we do when we garden and when we are in tune with the seasons of our garden. When you talk about going out into the garden at 6 a.m. and clipping for a wedding, there is this direct connection between you, the plant, the creativity, and this important emotional threshold that this these people are going to go through in the course of a wedding. And and we're talking about, you know, you mentioned not having hydrangeas in January, which is now sort of um, is sort of taboo because the the importance of seasonality, it's become a kind of 
catchphrase or a, a you know a trend, but it's a trend because the point of having of not having hydrangeas in January means that if we are using seasonal plants, we are more deeply connected to what is happening in the world around us, right? And and that's that same yeah. thing I think that you're talking about when you say you, you make something and it's beautiful and you and your husband enjoy it. So that connects you and it connects you to your garden. But then you make one to give to someone else and that connects you to them. And I don't know, it kind of it kind of holds us. Yeah. And I think it's almost it's a, a bit like paying it forward because I think you know with with plants and beauty you will you know not only is it just for you but it could be someone that's walking past your house and sees something in a window and they will enjoy it and for me that is the beauty you know I, I have a, a little front garden and um, we have a, a hotel nearby and quite often tourists will come and they will take pictures of my front garden and <laughs> For me, that's a real joy because they've got enjoyment from it. Yeah. And I'm sharing my garden with someone who might be in Beijing right. and looking on their smartphone. But, you know, it's it's a, a great way to connect with people. And I think that's, that's the, the, you know, the whole ritual of gardening, I think, also is so good for for a person to do. And... You mentioned about, you know, the, the trend of seasonality and, you know, um, I hope it's not a trend. I right. hope it's something that's sort of omnipresent now. Yeah. Because I think we sort of lost our way slightly with, you know, what eating tomatoes in February or, right. you know, so there's very much a respect for farming and and what what is what produce is available um, even in the kitchen, you know, there are lots of restaurants um and you know focus on what is seasonal food now and i think people are slowly realizing this is what's happening in the garden so it's it's almost you know reverting back to how it was years ago mm -hmm. and i think that's that's a really lovely thing because it, it means that we're we're in a way we're becoming more sustainable and also we're becoming more respectful of of what our environments are yeah and, 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 you know, I think that's a, such a lovely thing to be happening. And then when you come full circle to, to the winter holiday season and you go to a class or you gather with a group of people and you make a wreath, it is so ridiculously satisfying, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, even I love it when people come and they've never done it before and they think, oh, I'm not going to be very good. And then they produce something really beautiful and they're so pleased mm -hmm. that they've created this mm -hmm. to put on their front door and show off to the world. Yeah. I made this. Right. You know, it's a, it's a really for me, you know, I might, you know, do wreath making classes for over 100 people during the Christmas period. But I've made 100 people happy mm -hmm. and I've made 100 people create something beautiful for themselves and for others. So it's a, a for me, it's, it's very enriching. And I love that side of being an educator. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, British gardening floral designer and educator Thomas Broom Hughes of Petersham Nurseries and Thomas Bloom Floristry shares with us his own history of growing up in rural England. From age 6 to age 13, he found seasonal connection and meaning in his boarding school gardens and being a member of his school choir, which required him to stay at school over the holidays to sing for the Advent and Christmas church services. These weekly and seasonal rituals and traditions taught him to see flowers and seasons in specific ways. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's me, Jennifer. I am loving this conversation with Tom, hearing about his family traditions, hearing about how he decorates his house at the holidays, and I'm kind of wondering how to get an invitation to his house next year this time. You know it is lovely and inspiring. If you don't follow him, make sure to check out his website or see him on social media. He provides lovely views of beauty regularly, and we can really use these in all seasons, right? The thing I love most about this program are these kind of connections I make with you, 
other gardeners out there around the world, like hearing Tom talk about his early life traditions, British boys boarding school, working in the gardens, singing in the choir, and now his new traditions forged so lovingly with his husband. Very good reminders about life's best priorities. We gardeners are everywhere, and this human impulse to garden is important. It makes a difference to our mindsets, to our families, to our communities, and to our environments. Following your journeys in the garden, and this week hearing about the winter garden and greening traditions of other peoples and places is so mm, expanding. Have you heard yet the Cultivating Place holiday special? I am so humbled by and proud of it, with the story and art of Day Shilkret's morning altars, his reminding us to beware of the addiction to destination, his encouraging us to leave room for wandering. How awesome is that? And all of that encircled by the voices of gardeners around the world, sharing what gratitude looks like in their gardens. We can all be reminded to really see those things for which we are grateful. I know I can. If you'd like to know who's in the upcoming Cultivating Place episodes or get direct links to recent ones, make sure to go to cultivatingplace.com and sign up for the monthly newsletter Musings. Okay, back to Tom and his luxurious vision of holiday greening, time, and space made. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to hear more from British gardener, floral designer, and horticultural educator, Thomas Broom Hughes. He will share with us his very organic and beautiful concept for luxurious winter reeds. Welcome back. You are hosting this year several, and they're all sold out on your website, luxury wreath classes for small groups of people. I would love, if you are willing, for you to walk us through what this class looks like and feels like and how you build these luxury wreaths. What does this mean to you? So um, I'm very excited, actually, to be hosting these classes because um, my husband and I have had a beautiful garden room built on to the house, which is um, full of glass and looks out onto our new garden. Um, but of course, you know, the environment will be very much, you know, that I will create in here will be a sort of beautiful festive environment, lots of twinkling lights and candles and beautiful flowers and aromatic foliage. But actually the, the wreath that we will be creating in these classes is a traditional moss wreath so I don't like to use any sort of oasis or floral foam. Um, so I, I want to create something on a sort of wire frame using um, sphagnum moss. And all of the foliage that will be used will actually be grown in the UK. Hmm. So um, I've, I'll be using sort of beautiful eucalyptus, two different types of eucalyptus. Um, pines that have been um, grown quite near to the house actually there's a Christmas tree farm down the road and um, and then also within that wreath we'll be adding lots of fresh um, fruit so it will be whether it be apples or oranges or crab apples that have been gathered from trees nearby um, I've also been drying lots of seed heads in my greenhouse um, which I think are a lovely thing. There's there's um, quite a lot of people are using dried um, elements in their wreaths now, which I think is a, a nice addition because also that's sort of something that, you know, if you've grown it in your garden, a lot of growers are, are keeping poppy seed heads or hmm. helichrysum flowers. So, you know, we're not just filling it with baubles or, um, you know, plastic picks. Um, so it's, it's a very natural wreath and also using a lot of twiggy materials. So something that's very lush, by using the word luxury, luxury is quite a funny word, but mm -hmm. sort of quite an opulent wreath, but with that sort of garden-gathered look. Yeah. So not too ostentatious. So the, the wire frame you're using is sort of a three-tiered wire round. 
Is that yes. right? And it yeah. has a little bit of a sort of dome shape to the three wires? Yes, yeah. So then, I like to use a dome shape to give mm -hmm. more profile to the materials that are going on. And how, what is the, what is the diameter? So uh, normally I use a 12-inch mm -hmm. copper ring. Mm -hmm. um, and But the eventual diameter can be up to sort of 75 right. centimeters. Right. <laughs> and um, because I'm sort of... You know, I like to be quite generous and wild, so it does have that sort of ga garden gathered look, mm -hmm. rather than something that's very neat. Yeah, and how do you attach the bag? So, so you build your base by, um, by securing quite a bit of the sphagnum moss all the way around the frame, and then you build off of that. Is that right? Yeah. So the sphagnum moss is used. It's bound on using wire, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, but you sort of roll a, a very long sausage which of moss which goes around the ring and then you bind it on with the wire mm -hmm. and then add your evergreens. Um, so it's all done actually all in one go so you don't detach the wire at any time. Mm -hmm. So you build the wreath up as you go along which actually, you know, a wreath is a symbol of continuity mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, the process of making a wreath is a continuous process. So you don't really stop. You, you carry on until you've created this continuous circle. And when you are, uh, do you put all of your evergreens on and then add your, your twiggy and dried materials? Or do you integrate them as you're going? Um, I, well, personally, when, when you've done so many, um, I would integrate it all in, in one go. Mm -hmm. However, um, you know, it, uh, we start off by doing a foliage base and then adding all the um, accoutrement onto the wreath. Um, and these are sort of tucked in under the wire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then um, do you build uh, bundles as you're working with your greens or do you just layer them as you go around? Um, yeah, no, normally it's bundles. So um, I think you get a sort of a more interesting wreath if you mix foliages mm -hmm. and then add bundles of foliage. So you start off with large pieces, medium and small, to go on the inside of the wreath. Um, and, yeah, the bundles look more sort of lush mm -hmm. um, if you, you can mix a few different foliages together. Yeah. And they, for me, um, who has uh, been making them since I was tiny and am still not very graceful at this process, the bundles seem to add some security to it all holding together at the end. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, I think, the more foliage you have on there, the, the better it, it sort of secures itself. Because when you use the wire or, or some people use twine to mm -hmm. bind the materials on, because things shrink when, when they sort of dry out. You know, stop if you've got generous bundles it stops things dropping off right right and then with the fresh fruit and or if you use any fresh flowers how do you prepare them uh to to use on the wreath and how long do those last tom so with the the fruit um normally i'll use sort of stub wires to secure them onto the wreath um so the apples and oranges, you know, could last up until just after New Year. So the, the sort of period that you would want them to last. And if they're outside, you know, they, they will last generally in a frost-free environment for three to four weeks. Mm -hmm. um, fresh flowers. Um, these, because I don't use the floral foam, um, sometimes you can get little vials, plastic mm -hmm. vials that you fill with water and you can insert into the wreath. Um, which can also look very effective, but then you need quite a sort of generous large wreath in order to do this. But Right, so that um, the vials can get tucked in easily. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's always, hellebores are one of my favorite flowers, and mm -hmm. I would love to to adorn my wreath with hellebores, but, um, you know, they're so delicate and their stems are quite delicate that there's no way to insert them. Right, But right. maybe for a day or so. <laughs> <laughs> So what are your standards about ribbon? What kind of ribbons do you use and what kind of scale do you create with them? 
So um, ribbons, I sort of have a on-off relationship with ribbons. <laughs> um, so some years I choose not to have ribbon. Other years I do. This year, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was in New York and I stumbled across a fabulous um, shop in the garment district who had a lovely selection of velvet ribbons. So I couldn't resist coming home with a couple hundred meters of velvet <laughs> ribbon. Um, but if I do use them, it tends to be very sort of pale muted colors mm -hmm. um or sometimes actually the one velvet one i got a very sort of rich deep green color um but i tend to sort of not use huge amounts of ribbon and preferably no bows um but you know it's it's subjective ribbon mm -hmm. if someone wants to make a bow there they can make a bow mm -hmm. okay good um Yes, because ribbon seems to be a big thing this year. Different, cool, nice, natural yeah. fabric ribbons. And this, this velvet ribbon I couldn't resist. It mm. was, and it's funny actually because the shop I went into it was I think it was favoured by the drag world, so they had some quite flamboyant ribbon. <laughs> but I managed to find some really lovely, very chic looking ribbon. So nice. Walk us through your home and what you will have in your home for your own personal decorations this year, whether it's wreaths or kissing balls or garland or forced bulbs, what do you have? So um, I adore this time of year. So I am quite generous with my, my decor. Um, I love to decorate the outside of the house um, in a very sort of, um, a very sort of horticultural way. So um, normally my garden at the front, I always have some two urns on my front doorstep and two spruces and the two urns I fill with hellebores every mm. year. Mm. Um, and then I also, I, on my front porch, I make a huge um, blue pine garland that goes all around the porch that's interspersed with lights and Every year I have a different theme. One year it might be dried hydrangea heads or another year it will be seed heads. Um, but this year, actually, I've got some magnolia grandiflora trees in the garden that need pruning. So I might make a garland of magnolia grandiflora mm. instead. Mm. Um, I also put a lot of branches into all the planters and window boxes outside the house to make them look generous and, and Christmas-like. And then... Because we have a, a, a glass front door, we can't hang a wreath onto the front door. So I make one ginormous wreath that goes all the way around a window at the top of the house, mm. which is probably about one meter in diameter. Wow. And, um, and that goes around a little sort of porthole window we have, and I fill it with lights and beautiful berries and, and Christmas foliage. And then in the house, we'll have a couple of Christmas trees. This year will be a challenge because we have two adorable 11-month-old puppies <laughs> who may take an interest in my prized baubles. But um, <laughs> I think I might have to rethink the, the sort of Christmas tree and do something a bit more branchy, a sort of a ceiling installation rather than something that's freestanding. But in my garden room, I'll, I'll have a Christmas tree and fill the house with hyacinths, paper whites, hellebores and vases. I also have a one Christmas tree where I have um, little clip-on vases, which I found last year. I have 50 of them, and I love to cut hellebores from the garden and fill these little vases and have them on the tree. Oh. So, so it makes something. But I, I do love this time of year. It's a good time of year. It is. You know, so I'm going to end with one more sort of existential question, Tom, and that is, you know, we as as gardeners, as sort of natural born, this is one of the ways we express ourselves in the world. We know and feel the the meaning and the the power of this impulse and sharing it and expressing it. But yeah. I was I was thinking today as I as I drove into work to do the interview and I'm you know, I'm listening to the terrible news from from everywhere. You know, I'm we just had a, another shooting up in Northern California. The okay. U.S. is about to, or is trying to leave the Paris Climate Accord. The, the, the insects in Germany are showing 
incredible decline, which is just a bad sign for all of us in the long run. Why is what we do, why is this gathering in the garden, with the garden, why is it not just superficial and trivial escapism? Why is it more important than that? I think it's like we mentioned earlier that it's the whole connection with gardening i think that you know that's been proof that it's good for mental health and well-being and you know despite whatever you, you may be doing i think the fact that you're connected with soil or connected with nature and the environment is means that you can sort of take stock of what is going on in the world and sometimes, you know, if I'm feeling a little down or, you know, it, it, with, you know, there's so many things that we hear in the news now and you, you, you sort of think, you know, what is it all about? To be able to go into the garden and do something as sort of mundane as deadheading roses or mowing the lawn, you still feel that you, you're sort of connected with what the world is about growing newness of life and it's it I, th I think it very much sort of it is an important thing and I think people are realizing you know the importance of having that connection with with the garden and and with nature mm. is there anything else you would like to add to the fullness of this conversation um, no, I just think that it's uh, been lovely speaking to you, and I, I think that we're, we're very lucky people mm -hmm. to be able to enrich people's lives with with the joy of gardening and the joy of, of nature. Yeah. Thank you very much for being a guest on Cultivating Place in this lovely season, Tom. Thank you very much for having me, Jennifer. Thomas Broom Hughes is the owner of Thomas Bloom Floral Design and is the head of horticulture for the esteemed Petersham Nurseries in Richmond, England and Covent Garden, London. I loved the continuum of this conversation, the overview of the personal sense of calm, meaning and beauty in our gardens, as well in how we connect to one another and to the seasons of our place. How while these may change with time and space, culture and climate, they remain at their essence, our own continual expressions of this human impulse to garden and grow. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Original theme music by Matt Schultz. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.